You are listening to part two of the Permathon, an all-day, non-stop sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets in May 2019. As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly forward slash poem donate. Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's program of events, publications, education and outreach work and keep the doors open to our central London venue, the Poetry Cafe. That's bit.ly forward slash poem donate. Thanks. So my name is Lisa Kelly, so I'm going to be um, emceeing for the next uh, few poets and then I think introducing myself. I don't know if that's par for the course. <laughs> that's what I will be doing. So um, the first uh, poet in, in my particular MC slot, I hope I've got the pronunciation of the surname right, Juliet Irigare. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> is the best and probably the only Basque poet writing in English. A big round of applause for Julia. Hi, can you hear me well? Perfect. So, um, I've recently written many poems about sport, which is really funny because I was a disaster in school at PE, but I find it really inspiring. So, this is the Japanese women, rugby women. Defeat is certain, but the Japanese rugby women put their minds to be defeated with honor. The terraces are filled only with relatives, the match broadcast on a channel no one watches. But the Japanese mothers stand up and yell, wave the national flag. They followed their daughters to the other side of the world, knowing they wouldn't get past the first round. The Japanese players display sakura flowers on their scrum caps. Their opponents tackle them without pity, crushing them into the sludge. The Japanese mothers hold up. They've dragged their husbands along, the same men who had refused to allow their daughters to practice such a degrading sport. The Japanese mothers, too, had disapproved at first. Now they are the best supporters. So this is another sport poem. It's a bit daunting to read it now, a week before the European elections, but (laughs) I'm going to be brave. So my cricket kids. I scanned the pitch, teeming with Englishmen, wearing flannels with wickets and helmets. Their aristocratic poise is quaint for my expert size. This is a laser form of baseball, both noble and debased. This is a gentleman's game, a settler's sport. The China cup skin let their blue blood appear. White-colored and starched, they emerge from a Forster novel or Danton Abbey. I scrutinize them with a sardonic smile until I realize my children might play cricket one day, not hurling like their father, nor pelota like me. <laughs> they will belong to a third culture, one which will escape me like cricket's rules. Last year, I moved back to Paris after several years abroad, and I returned here because the country has changed a lot in a negative way. Les Misérables. One, the North African lady with a headscarf sells Kadaif pastries with a smile, a nudity for Paris. Her bakery's front window was stone. She looks trapped in a cobweb. Two, the metro. There are two drunkards fighting in the metro, 
two girls smoking weed on the platform, a family of refugees begging and living there who don't get that the mother's chador is a deterrent for passersby who believe she's a terrorist. There is a smelly woman declaiming a monologue in the carriages with the wrong intonation, selling stationery for two euro not to lose face. We found tricks to avoid beggars. We speak or read in English, fake being foreigners. They become aggressive when they don't get any change and insult those who refuse, preferably young women. Body languages. I've always struggled to learn the words for body parts in other languages. In Spanish, pronunciation was the hardest bit. I was a hisni snake saying corazón, ojos azules, gargling con la garganta. Latin is a dead language, so the tutor, and since flesh is well alive, my tutor never bothered teaching body parts. In English, I still need to remind myself that some words are uncountable and have irregular plurals, tooth, teeth, food, feet. In Italian, words change sex in their plural form. Why does l'orecchio become le orecchie? Il braccio, le braccia? In Japanese, I've never reached the level to learn body parts, so the problem was solved. I've always struggled to learn the words for body parts in other languages. So what? I bite my nails, my teeth are yellow, I have white hair, an eagle nose, big flat feet. <laughs> Ironically, this poem won a prize on Father's Day, <laughs> but I didn't tell my dad what it was about for obvious reasons. Tales of the Woodcock. One, a picture of me holding a woodcock my father had freshly shot takes pride of place in our living room. What a peculiar thing to let a three-year-old child pose with a dead bird and such a majestic one, but I'm not repelled. I'm familiar with, with the woodcock's umber and Bernstein plumage. I even know her Latin name is Scolopax rusticola, but her belly resembles bandages. I've learned to find the pin feathers, this delicate strip tease used by artists as brushes for miniatures. I spread her wing as one unfolds a moth, trying not to touch the powder which allows it flight. I'm not thinking about where her head is dangling. I just love to caress her cool skull cap. I grasp the woodcock tightly, my father's most precious treasure. I don't realize yet that he will neglect his family to track her down every weekend. I don't resent her being our rival. Two, a snapshot of a mind. I'm no more than 12 and my mother cooks woodcocks in boiling, boiling duck fats to preserve them. She offers to prepare me one for breakfast. I accept, but feel embarrassed as I know she's going to tell her friends and all the family how good a girl from the Southwest I am eating woodcocks at 9 a.m. <laughs> Such a strong child, her hunter's daughter. Now I feel terribly guilty when I devour the woodcocks my father shoots. I love the crack of a beak when I open it to catch the tongue, breaking the skull to suck the brain, the succulent taste of what I enucleate. Then I reflect on this pair of obsidian eyes, always glassy, the most impenetrable I've ever seen. 
So I make a small sacrifice by not asking my father to bring me others, hoping my opposition is of principle, not a rejection of him. <laughs> two, two more minutes, okay. So I have one last poem. Theresias and Moses. Believers go to the church of San Pietro in Vincoli to worship the manacles and chains of St. Peter, the secular to admire Michelangelo's Moses. When we visited it, the alarm was a strident swift's cry. Beyond the barrier protecting the statue, a man with sunglasses was touching Moses' knee under the guard's guidance. She was suspicious of the intrigued visitors staring at them. But the blind bland mind smiles were worth it. Of course he couldn't notice the controversial horns on Moses' head, nor that the statue was sweating light despite having the complexion of a smoker's lung. Yet he could feel the genius in the prominent veins, the details of the fold, the smoothness of polished marble. So the man was radiant because he had the privilege to caress a masterpiece and to come back home with a perception of Moses no other tourist had. Thank you very much. Thank you, Julie, for your wonderful poems. I love your slant look. Uh, very hilarious, some of those poems. It's great. Yeah. Means people can't take photos properly. Is that? Can you see my face properly from there? If you were taking a pic, it looked it looked really bright. Oh, was it? Oh well, there we go. It's better there. Okay. Our next poet is Ethna Cullen. Ethna's particular talents are doing poems, undoing knots making cakes and exaggerating. A big round of applause, please, Fresna. Thank you. Greg's already set the tone by name-dropping, which is great, because my first few poems are all about celebrity. I'm, I'm not actually someone who's interested in celebrity. You'll find that out when you hear me reading. This is one I wrote this week, and it's a very heartfelt poem for someone who died that I really have a very soft spot for. It doesn't have a title because it doesn't need one. 97 years of Doris days. Perhaps, perhaps, and case sera's. I'm pleased she came our way. That cheery smile that almost says, have fun with me, come dance and sing. Those sparkling eyes that just betray her flirting wit as she sachets the mischief of her buttoned-up ways. And my second poem is also about celebrity, and it's about the only poem that I can ever um, read because I know it off by heart, and it's about that very famous poem, poet, sorry, Pam Ayres. Pam Ayres never swears. Have you seen the clothes she wears? <laughs> and this is a true story, sadly. So those of you who know me will just think that... Uh, who said earlier on that poets are always name-dropping? This is called On Seeing Cel Celia Imry at the National Theatre. <laughs> I knew I'd know her anywhere when I saw Miss Babs standing there. Elegant dress and perfect hair, not like dinner ladies HR Square. I'd read her books and watched her acting. I don't usually find celebs distracting. Then, out of character for me, I walked right up to Miss Imry like some obsessive devotee, 
and declared my love most avidly. I thought she'd tell me to go away, but she told me that I'd made her day. And this is one I wrote earlier in the year in response to a news story. It's called About Last Night, and it has the subtitle, Pip the Greek. I'm sitting in my new Land Rover. Last night, I rolled the other one over. Good luck to you with your broken arm and your cuts and bruises. Not too much harm. I'm glad the baby was strapped in well. If he'd been hurt, they'd have given me hell. You won't be getting a brand new car. You won't be travelling very far. The sun was setting low in the sky. I had to squint. I was slitty-eyed. The road ahead was clear and wide, and I shot across to the other side. And if anyone says it's to do with my age, I'll have to show some real road rage. (laughs) This is another poem that I wrote this week. This week I've been doing a job called Invigilating, which is one of the most boring jobs in the world, and it gives you time to think up poems about how boring it is. And it's called Invigilation. On the exam treadmill, Invigilator pounds the rose, speaks in studious monotone, always moving, never sitting, checks the list and stirs, students fumbling for words, stumbling for answers, ready to write at speed, and pour out a shopping list of facts and into a book full of questions, waiting for answers. Excuse me, this one's just... This one I left on the printer this morning, but I'm going to read this. This is a poem about my mum, because it's always nice to write a poem about your mum. And this is called The Kind of Thing She'd Do. It was the kind of thing she'd do. Half a dozen children on a jaunt to a circus set up in a field. And she was up for any treat or outing, bought tickets and arranged the trip. The other grown-ups raised their eyebrows and showed no surprise. It was the kind of thing she'd do. Across the field, filled with anticipation, in white socks and sandaled feet, they sang. Oh dear, what can the matter be? Johnny's so long at the fair. And the noises of the fairground bled in organic discord, inviting them to hurry, walk faster as they neared the tent. And in they went to see the ring, so small close up with hard-packed dirt and bales of hay for walls. Little feet climbed the rake of benches and found their seats and wriggled into place. And there were sweets for all, the grit of candy floss, on milky white teeth and grinning excitement as the show began. It was all there for them. Ringmaster, horses with riders, tumblers, acrobats, a twirling woman on a hanging rope, clowns in a collapsing car. And when the bucket flew into the crowd, they gasped, hung in suspense, till it filled confetti to their laughter of relief. She beamed, happy at their joy. It was the kind of thing she'd do. Then home, full of stories of what they'd seen and what had made them laugh. And blonde white Ian made them laugh again, 
so excited to have seen the elephants. And she was pleased she'd brought them and showed no surprise. It was the kind of thing she'd do. This is a poem about um, how to dig a grave. It's called How to Dig a Grave. And I'll just tell you briefly where it came from. Um, there's a very famous... It's one of the famous um, non-conformist cemeteries in London, Abney Park. And in the, in the cemetery, they have a grave which they open up from time to time and they use it for filming and uh, advertisements and so on. If you ever watch the video of uh, Back to Black, it's filmed in Abney Park and... They had to open a grave for it. And John, the guy who runs... He's one, like, one of the, the people who's really in charge, has to open the grave up. So I wrote a little poem when he described what it was like. It's called How to Dig a Grave. Set the scene with costume. Heavy Gothic gear with biker boots. Swing the pickaxe. Wound the earth. Beat it. Swat it till it breaks. Precision cutting has no place here. When you're in the hole, keep digging. In the belly of the ground, prod and jab the clay with your spade. Shovel the earth over your shoulder into a heap behind. The deeper you get, the harder the load. When you're in the hole, keep digging. Measure with your size 12 feet, like a crossword, six down and two across. Then wait for someone to lift you out. And this is a poem I wrote for... Um, it was for the, uh, the Carers UK uh, call-out for poems about the care system. And it's a poem about someone who is in the care system. And I was very fortunate enough to have this commended in their competition, in, in their um, anthology, and highly praised by some of the visiting dignitaries. It's called The Ageing Rocker. The ageing rocker, rocking in the corner... His fingers, stained and yellow, cracked and sore. Fiddle with a bracelet made of knotted string. His leather waistcoat, symbol of lost rebellion, hangs loose about his fading frame. And the tattoo, slack on tired, mottled skin, lies limp. Not the proud motto it once was, carved with a penknife and some dodgy ink. His slogan, sex and drugs and rock and roll. The sing-along host is belting out some tunes. Pack up your troubles and give me your answer do. But in his head, the song remains the same. And Jimmy Page is teasing out a riff. And Janice told him it was fine to lose his sight. She'd rather go blind than see him walk away. Now he'd be leaning on his zimmer as he left. She'd see his ten-laced docks amid the slippered feet. And he would make some sense of all of this. But for now, he's locked and rocked inside his head. And I'll make this my last poem. It's, um, sorry, I'm just coming down with a cold. It's a poem about art. And again, this one doesn't have a title. Dado Dada, cubist, modernist, cunning tricks with piles of bricks, Tracy Emin's bed. Negative spaces, Picasso's faces, 
expressionist, modernist, Turner's trick of the light captures naval forces, stubs your man for horses, pre-Raphaelites all delight with beauty in idyllic themes, Rubens shows the watch at night, Orbach lays the paint on thick for Mornington Crescent scene, Jackson Pollock's The Dog's Bollocks, <laughs> Yeats paints up a storm, Hockney's pools very cool, Gauguin's landscapes warm. Paint on fabric, paint on walls. Let lines run away. Smear your body fluids if your name's Gilbert or George. <laughs> Tread softly in the gallery. Don't make a sudden sound. Stand back to see the whole story. In wonder, gaze around. I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ethna, for that incredibly lively set. That was really funny. I think I'm going to nick that Pam Ayres poem. Paul McGrain always swears. Have you seen the clothes he wears? <laughs> okay, next up we've got Bridget Minimal. Uh, she published her debut pamphlet, Titanic, in 2016. And she's also a journalist and writer. So, Bridget, come on up. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to be here. Um, yeah, I cycled here, so I was really sweaty, but it's very air-conditioned, so I'm, like, a perfect temperature, which is, like, a once-a-year occurrence when you're a poet, isn't it? You know what I mean? The stage is always too hot or too cold all the time. Um, I just thought I'd read some homes from the pamphlet, which I haven't done because it's three years old in, like, a week. What's the date? today? 18th. Uh, five days and it'll be three years old, which is weird. Um, so I don't read from it that often, but I thought I would. Uh, so the book is called Titanic and um, it's called Titanic because I was heartbroken and wanted the metaphors to be really obvious. And so, um, yeah, it's the sort of poems that if you feel rubbish and you want to drown and take a few thousand people with you, they're for you. <laughs> uh, I, do, I do still get emails from people being like, I gave this to my partner, and I was like, don't do that. It's about... <laughs> but anyway, um, so I'll just read a few. They're sort of... They're not separated in the book. Every poem is named after a song from, like, Diana Ross to, like, Drake. Um, and... But in my head, they're sort of in three lumps. The first set of poems are sort of new love ah oh. the second set is new love ah oh. and the third set is like new love oh um so i'll read a bit from each of them half past five her smile was like a fishing net her hands were hooks her eyes a two-seater canoe but it is me who lies here next to you here now me who melts in the heat of your half clove body Do I want to know? Oh, you don't need to clap. They're so short. They get shorter as well. Um, I'm not sure I know what love feels like, but lust is your arm across from me. Our bodies fully clothed and a coil from somewhere deep inside. An overfed snake, a fat cobra waiting to spring in the dark. And then, oh, you don't need to. Honestly, they get so much shorter. It gets, it gets, it gets sillier. My predator. Two become one. After the Spice Girls. You are slowly running your hand along my waist and I am so aware of your breathing and your fingertips and the hair on your face that skims the inches of my shoulder blade. I wonder if our bodies are the same now. 
Maybe in the magic space between night and day, that space that only people who have people understand. Maybe at some time before the dawn, we were so close to one another. You and I, we became the same person or something. And we either didn't realize or we simply didn't care. Okay, so that's, um, huh, we're going into her. Uh, um, running around with you, tell me. She arrived like a well-worn speed bump in the way. Um, but a second-hand emotion, you're an asthma attack. You make my lungs tight, my chest contract, my back press against my breasts, my airwaves with you are a mess. Against all odds, after Phil Collins. I want to cut your legs off. Not so you can't walk away, more in the hope you'll stay exactly where I want to put you. And then taking its toll. You know, this 21st century thing of not defining your romantic and or sexual relationships is a bit shit, isn't it? Um, I'll leave that there. And then I'll read, I'll read a few of the longer ones. Um, it's more like, love. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh, wait, maybe I'll read this one last little one. With you, boy. I think of you so much it's become embarrassing, painful, sad, cringe, awful shit, hideous, monstrous, annoying, 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 and crap. One word. Um, yeah. With every heartbeat. It's after Robin. <clears throat> I don't think we can ever fully love each other. Am I allowed to say that? It's a startling realization, one that picks at the tips of my fingers, pecking at me every time you reach to hold my hand. There is this flock of birds between us now, this strange swarm of small beasts beating their wings like broken time and bad promises. So I start to stay away from you. That's strange. They're mostly pigeons, the birds in my head. London ones. All grey and sad and dirty and fucking everywhere. But it's the others that alarm me the most. A swan called jealousy, a crow named anger, this pair of drifting swallows that will not leave me alone, boredom and indifference. And then there's the other bird, drumming against the windows of the aviary, spitting storms in the saliva of our mouths. Her name is the other girl that you've just started seeing. <laughs> what a nice audience. Um, 808s and... <coughs> Excuse me. It's like we're playing the okey-cokey and our feelings are in a circle on the floor and we're jumping in and out, in and out, in and out, and it's exhausting. In, out, in, out, in, out, like a shit fuck. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, shake it all about. We do the okey-cokey and we turn around and we walk away from each other. We give up on this thing, whatever this thing is, and we don't even end it properly. We barely say goodbye, really, because that's what it's like when you've hurt one another one too many times. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, the okey-cokey. Oh, the okey-cokey. Oh, the okey-cokey. Knees bent, arms up, let's break up. <sighs> uh, all the small things, I'll read like three more. Oh, they're still short. All small things, after Blink 182. Yeah. <laughs> There's something ridiculous about this moment. 
Me watching you with her. You ignoring both her, me, and everyone else. Your friends watching me watch you with her. Or maybe they're oblivious to me and just are watching you with her. I'm not sure which is worse. Her watching you, watching you, watching you. She is constantly watching you. She is desperate for your attention. I hate how much I hate her. I don't want to be that girl. But then I realize if I am watching her, watching you, I'm just watching her. Which is infinitely more embarrassing, isn't it? I'm watching her watching you. I'm watching her waiting for something. I don't know what. I'm watching her watching you. I'm watching and waiting. I'm watching, watching, waiting, waiting, commiserating. <laughs> Say it ain't so. I will not go. Turn the lights off. Carry me somewhere else that isn't here. Um... Uh, and then, yeah, fucking problems after ASAP, Rocky, and Co. It's like seven of them. If I compare our doomed relationship to a ship that sinks in the middle of the Atlantic in a few hundred poems, will you finally start to get it? <laughs> it's really funny. I took out the words few hundred because I felt too embarrassed. There's only 25 in the pamphlet. People didn't need to know how many drafts there were. If I compare our doomed relationship to a ship that sinks in the middle of the Atlantic in a few hundred poems, will you finally start to get it? Or maybe that's too straightforward. You've always said I've been a little bit difficult. <laughs> bit too much poetry in me. Maybe I am the ship and you are the iceberg and after crashing into you, I sink and I'm not found for a very long time. Or maybe we're the passengers, Jack and Rose and Epicano. I'll survive, but I'll still never forget you. And you die. Or maybe we're actual passengers, drowning due to forces way beyond our control and only God could sink the ship we were on. Or maybe it's more abstract than that because this is supposed to be a poem. Maybe it's more abstract than that because this is supposed to be a poem and the ship is a 5,000 ton lump of pure, raw, poetic, imaginary emotion, balancing badly on a stormy, poetic sea. Maybe in this very poetic, imaginary scenario, I am a struggling passenger that escapes and you are a life raft, shaky but constant and good enough to save me and get me to the shore before you collapse with the weight of me. Me, not because I'm that heavy, but because your support was never meant to last that long. Or maybe I am my own life raft and I can save myself. Maybe I'm a captain who stays with a sinking ship and you are God or whatever it is who sinks it. And I am God or whatever it is who lets this big beast go. It was for the best. It taught everyone a lesson. I don't know. I don't know. But somehow and some way the Titanic reminds me of you. Um, and I'll read, yeah, I'll read one more and then I'll go. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to read two, the two shortest ones. Leave right now. After all young. I miss you. I miss your friendship and your laughter and your anger and your crude jokes and your hands. I miss you and I'm not sure I miss the two of us together. And near far after Celine. That day, the first day, the day that started everything, the day when the other friend you rejected left, you curled up behind me immediately, gripped the dip of my waist like a life raft, my hips a flotation device in your bed, your wrists motioned heavy against the current of my skin. I knew that day, but I said nothing. I should have turned to you and whispered, it's okay, Leonardo, I know you promised to hold on, but I know you will have to let go. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bridget. 
I'm glad we all ignored her request not to clap in between. That is impossible not to. So um, uh, the next poet up is Denise Sewell. Denise is a poet and a visual artist. She is also a Jeffrey Dreamer Prize winner. Hooray! Come on, Denise. Good, the lighting's good. Okay. These poems are a nod to Stroke Awareness Month, and they're a sequence of poems. The White Room. There is a moment for meditation when the doctor leads me into the room with table, bed, and cupboard. When he leaves, I look out of the small window. There's a view of other windows unknown. I never thought that I would make peace with noise. Chimes of the midnight bell, traffic and low-flying planes remind me that God is a never-ending white ceiling. I look at the right hand that doesn't move on the cushion, and I name it Paula. The clenched fingers look like a woman's head, and this is where I locate your mouth in this small fist. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. The youngest daughter as a carer. The mirror flips her left to right but doesn't turn her upside down. Out-of-focus objects are interpreted by the mind as deep background. My mother looks at another reflection. Experience shows her that her head only turns to the right. An instance may be seen when two mirrors face each other the first will be reflected in the second. I nod, and my mother also nods. There are many occasions when I do not see myself. Uh, my mother had a speech disability called aphasia. Hoist. I spent an hour trying to navigate the hoist, but the front wheel would not reverse. The wheel sometimes doesn't work on the carpet. This could have been due to a trainee engineer who did not repair the hoist, but made some kind of joke about the brakes. He said that I should not try to lift her by myself, but I was confused by this. Apparently, I sounded angry even though I was not. I asked for a different engineer. She later moved her left leg. It did not occur to me that she wanted to walk. A daughter's perspective. In the evening, I read Paul Broca's Memoir d'Anthropologie. She recites sentences from the left hemisphere. In the mindfulness of listening, 
Sundays at home, at home. A representation of a scene is often one simple conversation. When morning arrives, the radio stops speaking. Now, instead of hearing her from one infinitely distant and divine point of view, further points of view are included in our conversation. If I stand in front of the window and look at her wheelchair, the person in front of me seems to be smaller the closer she is. My mother uh, spoke with different parts of her body. Therapy. The occupational therapist touched my mother's head. Lovely headscarf. What a lovely blue. My mother looked into her face and touched her arm. The occupational therapist said the color was lovely and the way that the bow rested on her neck was lovely. She said the women in Australia tied their headscarves not like that, not like a flower, not like a rose, to be precise. She asked my mother about her legs. Did they feel cold or too warm? as it was hot outside, but cool in the room. She said all this when she tucked the blanket over mother's lap. My mother looked further into her eyes. The blue bow slipped down the side of her face and she gently tried to push it away. Lovely blue, said my mother. Voices. What you leave out describing it all are the days of the week. We talked for a few minutes about the family photo album. I sometimes thought that to her, my birthday did not matter. What you leave out is everything. You look away and you close your eyes. I talk too much, but no one has told me to stop. This happened, and this happened, and then this. Someone walked into a garden. He's the same one who gave us the word and took it away when we sat in the garden where bindweeds climbed the wall. This is where we heard him count seven days into a week. We saw someone who looked like you, and when she turned around, it was me talking to myself. And I have dreamt this before, someone who walked into a garden. I know it's you when I talk with the God of Roses. I have dreamt this often. Respite. I sometimes went off on short walks to the park where every path looked the same. I wondered whether she would understand why I went to the park. All day working in the same house where I talked to myself. I wondered whether my mother wanted to also go outside and if I should mention my walks to the park. 
if I think about it, most people's conversations aren't that interesting. Just two more. They see the hands that cover their bodies. Gatekeepers fly through our garden. I cannot catch them without a net. Again, I close my hands together, but they see the trap. They feel my palms. I cannot catch them when I walk because my body must be still behind the delphiniums. I must become the delphinium if I am to hold them. They see the hands that cover their bodies. These outstretched fingers are too slow. We're not afraid, they say. No one has ever caught us without a net. It's the last one. It's called Instructions for Yellow. Saul's diary entry for September 2014. I feel nothing from the sunlight that falls on my face. It is impossible that we will talk about it again. A person in a room is affected by the color of the walls. The yellowness that we see in the garden is not a daffodil. She did not want us to wear black at the wake. I can't recall who was silent first. The surface of every body is affected by color. And yellow will look more vivid against a dark background. I thought she whispered something about the room, but she wanted to say, thank you. You are listening to part two of the Permathon, an all-day non-stop sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets in May 2019. As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly slash poemdonate. Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's programme of events, publications, education and outreach work, and keep the doors open to our central London venue, the Poetry Café. That's bit.ly slash poemdonate. Thanks. So this is the best introduction I think anybody is ever going to get to give up here. Sam Grudgings yells words at people because it's cheaper than therapy. (laughs) Sam! Hello. I'm Sam, you can tell because it says that on my badge. I've been thinking about the complicity of privilege and toxic masculinity, but I can't do anything about it, so I just wrote a poem about it. Uh, it goes like this. No, no, we go, I like it like that. Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me okay if I do this? I can project. Anyway, it goes like this. Uh, I think the men are made from the mistakes they make at the expense of others, and their tithes are only paid as pounds of flesh years too late to be of any use of a cure. What about boys whose mouths lay derelict for decades, overgrown with the complications of alabaster, vows of silence, their only language, faith in themselves, relegated to lost and found boxes? There are boys whose... There are boys, seven years bad luck, proof of broken childhood and shattered homes, reflections of the penance they endured, bearing ecclesiastical scars from the shards of prayers not answered. 
What about boys born at the exact height that they'd eventually be, but then never grew to their full reach and so stood suspended in air over shoes they would never get to fill, denied entry to heaven, told clerical collars cannot be made of rope? All of them trying to be sacred in the shape of monasteries of men with skin turned to slate, tongues tiled to the roof of mouths, steeple full of hollow bells warning us away, held up by expectation, held up as an example, held up by not knowing that collapse is okay sometimes. We write blueprints for boys who become condemned buildings who are rebuilt as empty office blocks, luxury flats the planned obsolescence of ruin, and then we are told that this is progress. Look at us. Are we not the patron saints and architects of our own collapse? We would go on pilgrimages to become men who go in studies and shadow to find themselves, become copies of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that was never made clear to us, with faith invested in our preachers that leer over us from pulpits saying, I didn't want to do this. You have no idea how sad this makes me, and this is hurting me more than it is hurting you. We are empty spaces, conditioned to believe that no one believes in us, raised like the hell that we are told we are. I would reach through the years of Catholic guilt if I thought it would change things, grab the priest by the throat and say, Father, I cannot be absolved of my sins unless I do better. And we must do better because we cannot do any worse. I want to scream this into the empty churches my brothers became, but my tongue is caught in a ritual of words. I have signal fires in my throat. And I speak this only to a congregation of ghosts. There is a prayer that I tell myself. And it sounds like a poem. It is a prayer that we will learn how to talk instead of react. It is a prayer addressed to anyone who will listen. And it is a prayer that there will be someone who will. Yeah, uh, I, I actually had a mid 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 set list change, um, so I'm gonna no, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this one off memory and see if it can go. Um, obviously, on the mental health awareness week, um, you know I think that's that's great, and you know, how's the parliament lit up green like a haunted fucking house, a country goes further by ghosts of everyone that is lost to it. This poem is for anyone that has any problems with all of our coping mechanisms are tied up in our friends and our family, and sometimes they can be the most toxic elements of recovery from mental health in any forms or shapes and sizes. Um, it's called Working Title, which started off as a joke when I wrote it, and then I've just never changed it. So um, it goes like this, I think. Your mother is a postal worker. She only writes in ceramic, swells her hand with shins. Your address, public intasiography, the last dregs of the last words to you that she promised she never said. Your brother is an overdraft. Your brother the final reminder. Your brother a dressy gone away, returned to sender. He does not live here anymore. There are nothing but postcard reminders of his existence and the honey sticky and blue tack bleats residue on walls from where he tried to store his memories. Your father is forgotten. Your father's name is mispronounced and you are thankful for small sympathies. His noun was an abstract that must be. So we shaped itself into language and we left it in words not said. You, you have so many names for yourself that you covet them. Mr. Never learned how to say no. Mr. Perpetually in probation. Mr. Can't hold down a job like it's choking him. Mr. Can't hold onto a relationship like it's poison, stubbing out always your final cigarette from that pack that you were always quitting in ashtrays fashioned from last night's promises. 
called yourself something that needed an escape plan, something last minute to run away from, but you never thought about the two of running. The destination was always less important than the leaving, and you breathe harder than most with your hurricane chest made up of nothing but exits. You leave behind empty spaces that look like allergens. You are so scared of heights, but cannot think of anything other than flying away, away, away from here. Seeking some far-flung forgotten corner of the get-out clause. You get to the airport, and you know that they are going to ask you if you have packed the bags below your eyes yourself, and I know that you do not have time to unpack all of that in public. You search around for your passport response, your get-out-of-everything clause, and find there is no amnesty for loss. There is no embassy to protect those who declare themselves a no-nation-state, with your family hanging over your head like some no-fly zone. Some mismanaged wish you were here that you cannot rid yourself of, and so, so you return. It's what passes for home, the same journeys every night. You return to find all your unanswered questions waiting in porcelain on the doormat with this correspondence writ sour on the cage walls of your ribs, and you think to yourself, what a beautiful blessing the word boundaries is. Thank you. I thought I was, so I'm going to do one more. Um, just for context and to do this, you can um, follow me on Twitter uh, under StoryGiverPoet, uh, Instagram StoryGiverPoet. You can follow me in real life, but I'm actually from Bristol. I've just kind of come up for the weekend, so that might be a little bit difficult, and it's generally frowned upon. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lonely, so feel free to. Um, uh, for, for the context of this, there's, there's a guy back home in the Bristol scene, and like everyone loves the gossip of the poetry scene, I find anyway. Um, certainly whenever I see my London mates, that's all I ask for, gossip, 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 gossip. He wrote a poem about a dog that died and it was really sad. Turns out the dog never existed, so this is my poem about my dog that did. Oh, oh, it never existed. There was no dog. You know exactly who I mean. Yeah, see, see this, is, this is shade, but this is... This is going to need a little bit of audience, audience participation. Not only do I need you to applaud at the end to validate me getting up and doing poetry, because that really helps, um, but I'm also going to shout something at the start, and I just need you to shout, long live dog, back at me. Is that okay? Yeah. Cool. Okay, so it goes like this. The dog is dead! Long live dog! The dog is dead! Long live dog! The dog is dead! Long live dog! You tail-wagging day of a greeting! You slippers up a newspaper of a home. You single-headed idiot of a Cerberus. You bring the walk back with you and forget the stick hound. You memory, you paw print of a cold-nosed pet. You never learned to play dead, but you're doing a pretty good job of it now, friend. You rug of a companion. You comforter of a hound. And you draft excluder of a puppy. You grumpy old git of a guard dog. You wouldn't bark unless it was to give away the game. You home in canine form. You 52-card pack-up of a wolf pack. You fluffy asshole. You lease to yesterday. You brown head smelly. He's not that bad. Just push him away if he's a fuss thing. You sprawling muddy-fielded closed-in skies and never caught the game nor gave it away. You were the rough and ready best bloody friend I could have ever asked for. You know of a retort. You magic bastard of a surprise. We called you Merlin after the wizard, but the only trick you ever learned was how to disappear. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Sam. That's brilliant. So the energy level is going to come down a bit. I think after Sam, it's bound to. And um, 
I'm going to introduce myself, as you do. Hello, hello. So my name is Lisa Kelly. You can probably read that if you've got good eyesight. Um, and I'm the chair of Magma Poetry. And this is my book, which is out soon. Well, it's out now, really, isn't it? Because I've got it in my hand. Um, but it's meant to be out in June, so. <laughs> but I'm going to read... Um, I think I, I, I was, I'm going to read... Actually, I've changed my mind after li listening to some of the poems and after um, um, Sam's poem, um, your first one about mental health. Um, it's in the, in the news this week about 100 fatal stabbings and... I've got a teenage son, um, and a lot goes on with teenage boys. So I'm actually going to read the whole of just, yeah, one. Um, it, oh, it's a crown of sonnets. Uh, so I'm just going to read, power my way through that. And it is a, um, a mashup of some of John Donne's lines and his poems, um, his love poetry and his religious, his religious poetry, with my own um, poetry and which you know research and and list poem as well, um, which is which is in at the end. So that's enough of an introduction. Um, yeah. So Corona cuts after John Donne for our sons. They search my bag like an abandoned flat, raking for answers to unformed questions, fumbling with tissues and bits of old tat unable to grasp haptic impressions. What do I know of my son's compass point? Why did this prick try to hide in the seams? Have they not heard, we all have a fixed foot, how the other hearkens after and leans? My circle is just, my son is secure, absence, expansion in a foreign land. Sharp reminders and tokens underscore, each search a charade till steel is in hand. Let us close this bag and let me go through. This flat is unoccupied, the rent due. This flat is unoccupied, the rent due. We salvage the mattress from Spain's dark street, erect steel bars for a four-poster view, lie on a bloodstain covered by a sheet. From here we hear the bells of Aranquet, sad chimes from Rodrigo's concierto. Since thou and I sigh one another's breath, engrave antes muerto que madado. Our sons will not dare into Walthamstow, Battersea, Harlesden, Oakwood, Marlebone. They will not venture into Enfield, Bow, Wandsworth, Peck and Rhyme, Uxbridge, Myland, home. Let us close this flat. Rodrigo is owed, sooner dead than change, but seeds must be sowed. Sooner dead than change, but seeds must be sowed. Who can stop him winding down the wrong path? At the round earth's imagined corners blow, nose, wipe streaming eyes, repair your torn half. He strayed outside his postcode and was lost. The subway where he might play his last scene. No time even to be idle. The cost of the cut-through alley underpass green. All whom war, death, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, Lord Chance, being in the wrong ends hath slain, to your scattered bodies go. Authorities, politicians, search solutions in vain, can't contain measure. The globe's four corners a dream. Sons walk the next street, foreigners. A dream. Sons walk the next street, foreigners share conversation, customs, care, break bread. 
And Europe, Africa, and in Asia blurs into one round ball. Dream that no one bled. Dream the difference between butterfly and butter as descriptions for a knife. Dream the standoff aftermath pass you by. Dream you applied pressure to save a life. His dream of diverse shores is a nightmare. Our sons reject the seven sleepers' den. One little room is not in everywhere. A dream of safety, his wool-lined pen. Not thy sleep, thine image, thy servant, thy son. Wake and batter your heart. What have I done? Wake and batter your heart. What have I done? He stole a knife from the cutlery drawer. What reason? In their own words, here are some to protect myself against my father. My dad was stabbed to death when I was three. I will stab them first, it's for protection. They would have beaten the shit out of me. It is a tool for intimidation. It does not matter how tough the laws are. The risk that someone will pull one on you. I would if anyone took things too far. People are always tooled up, it's not new. Thank God, chopped, had I not had it with me. Angels affect us oft and worshipped be. Angels affect us oft and worshipped be. Knife angel is hoisted by cranes to sky. Society looks up and strains to see. Here is a glint that's not in the eye, not in a voice, not in a shapeless flame. 100,000 confiscated blades, messages engraved on wings, Victims' names, this monument, an ironmonger's trade. As yet, but not breathe, shine, and seek to mend, you're forced to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Metal tested so we can comprehend, weight of wasted lives, hopes forged anew. Stamp your mark, stamp out this epidemic, each loss named a wound, each cut systemic. Each loss named a wound, each cut systemic. Handle, point, edge, grind, blade, spine, fuller, guard, escutcheon, bevel, gut hook, choil, crop stick, ricassa, bolster, hilt, tang, butt, lanyard, athame, balason, cane, deba, bocho, ear, fasson, gravity, hunting, izar, jabaya, kukuri, languili, mandal, navaka, opanil, pata, karma, rondel, shiv, trench, rumi, vol, vedong, exacto, doshi, zombie knives. Mother, father, sister, brother, daughter, son. Friend, lover, neighbor, society, lives. Stab, shank, chib, zur, zook, slice, wet steel. For what? They search my bag like an abandoned flat. Thank you. Ha, uh, so... That's me finish. I'm handing over to a new host. Is it Kirsten? No. Come on up. Hi, everyone. You've all had a good poemathon so far. Thanks for coming out today. Uh, what should I say? Buy a T-shirt. There we go. I'm wearing one here. They're great. It's very comfortable uh, and trendy. Um, Enter our tombola, if you haven't already. We've got some cool prints from cool people and amazing books. Uh, I'll say more between other poets. But for now, I'd like to introduce the first poet of the next hour or so, Kirsten Irving, editor at Sidekick Books, voiceover artist, copywriter, and Corvid fan. Her poem, Namazu at the Physicist's Funeral, 
was commended in the most recent National Poetry Competition, anthologies for which you can buy upstairs, so please buy one. They're like 250 I should know this, but I don't. But anyway, they're very cheap. You should get one or read it online. It's a really good poem. Please give a warm welcome to Kirsten Irving. Hats off for pronouncing that. <laughs> um, okay, so this is uh, Yosemite Sam. I got it licked, rabbit. I don't get mad no more. Watch this. Here's your Sammy boy. Someone knocking at your front door, rabbit. Dirty son of a battle, strawmy crat. Yeah, right hook. Left to the jaw. Ho, hog. Keep on reaching for the ceiling till you reach it. I'm a taking the parachute. I'm a sailing with the tide. I'm riffraff Sam, Chillicold Sam, Shanghai Sam, old honest Sam. I'm a steppin', I'm a Hessian, I'm Sam von Schmam. There's your piano, rabbit. Now play. Get it going before I punch you, you hide. I'm a commandeer in this here clown car. I'm a taking it back, see, in little bitty pieces. Thank you. He's one of my favorites. <laughs> this is called uh, In the Land of the Vampires. In the land of the vampires, the winter brought a stranger, a wolf raised by villagers, to whine concernedly about outsiders, would skinny across from the combs of the trees to lie at our feet and grunt and grumble its unrest. It was a wiry thing, greasy with summertime glaze, with a weepy right eye and a notch in its ear. We were told it had been seen adrift on two legs, coughing the night from its lungs in a clearing. The girl who had seen it was the premier speller in the, of the rickety school in the missionary's house. The wolf was called Chops, because it did not groom, but licked its smooth black lips obsessively. It wore a rosary round its neck, and it was accepted that this would stop anything going too far. I stayed a winter with my host family, who had just enough to keep me. And even they, stuck, even they snuck bones to the dozing furball by the central well. I called him Harker, because chops seemed unseemly, and to feel slightly clever, though I could not work a pump. The other wolves called him, as though as through the street, as if through the steam of a railway station, to come back. He would answer in goggling brief that he was fine and still wild. They would check in again when the next trekked by. The longer I stayed with my family, the more I grew to love the food that had flipped my gut at first, and the more, despite my cross, I was bitten by cruising mosquitoes, fat with West Nile virus. I'd been jabbed against it and suffered very little, but in a mild throw, I saw Harker follow the spelling girl into the forest, where he stripped his skin for her and stood there lean like venison. She appraised him with a bob, her head cross-helmeted with thick black braids, and told him she was leaving for the city. She grabbed his scruff and whispered that he must not follow her on twos or fours or in any form, or she would shoot him. And she went back a secret way, thorning her apron, arriving before him, bolted and cool. She left for the city before her parents could howl for her, ready to be laughed at in all her silly colours. 
Um, so a while back, uh, Clinic put out a call a few years back now for Simpsons poems. Um, and having watched the play Mr Burns, it, it's become clear how big of a sort of a, a communal knowledge uh, um, we have of the Simpsons. Um, my favourite episode uh, involved Lisa deciding to make a feminist version of Malibu Stacy called Lisa Lionheart, um, following a very disappointing talking Stacy, which said things like, let's forget our problems with a big bowl of strawberry ice cream. Um, Lisa Lionheart would have been a success, but it was, um, it was sabotaged by the Malibu Stacy company, who rolled out Malibu Stacy with new hat. <laughs> and even Mr. Uh, even Mr. Smithers, the uh, tragically closeted biggest Malibu Stacy collector, <laughs> fell for it. Uh, the only girl who actually bought Lisa Lionheart was Nina Skalka, um, one of Lisa's schoolmates. Uh, 20 years later, she gets an email. From Heartburns57 to nscalka underscore 80. Would you consider selling the Lisa Lionheart doll that goes with the Congress Ensemble? I was there the day they came out, saw the plastic pyramid and the Eleanor Roosevelt slacks and said, I want one, I want one, and would have trampled the girls to the last one. I wanted to hear it say, it's okay to be you. But Stacy distracted me. I bought her new, new hat and felt soothed. I bought her smile and felt sand upon. My completest streak called me like a controlling mother. I thought of her sisters, of how they would miss her, this milliner Stacy, having never known her, of how Lisa would not fit in, of how they would resent her, and I've never told anyone this, but how I feared they would turn on her? Isn't that crazy? I locked the door. From Heartburns57 to Nscalka, underscore 80. Name your price. Please reply. I went back the following day and they were gone. Not just sold, but swept into remainders. Heading somewhat, somewhere upstate in a truck full of limbs. I, I searched out Stacy Lavelle. She swallowed my calls like a black hole. I tried the Simpson girl, and even she had no clue. Just the store clerk, who said he saw a blonde braided girl pull the string on the one Lisa Lionheart sold. That it trilled out, Trust in yourself and you can achieve anything that she smiled and smiled, this one kid, and she left doll in hand, and I think that was you. From nscalka underscore 80 to heartburns 57. Mr. Smithers, am I correct? I would sell you Lisa, but my daughter adores her. Her hair has been cut and will never grow back, but the voice box tells Kim to keep her name. We never enjoyed the White House playset because what fun can you have under so much guard? But she draws all the time, new Lisas, new phrases, new friends for her doll. There must be more like her, she says, as you have no doubt said in the intervening years. And we've all made mistakes. But if you know a way to do this, perhaps we could make things right. Do you know how to prototype? Do you know Lavelle? I've sent you some sketches. I know you didn't ask. Thank you. Um, I think this is my last one, timing-wise. Have I? Okay, I will do two. I might indulge in a second Simpsons one for fun. <laughs> right. So I came up with two for the, uh, the Simpsons anthology. That was the one that made it, and this was uh, a secret favorite. 
one of the minor characters uh, who keeps popping up and stealing things is uh, Snake Jailbird, who is your basic white trash uh, criminal who just haunts Springfield and steals things. Um, there is an episode called Detention Bird where a film of the same name um, of Snake in his youth appears, and that's the title of this poem. Detention Bird. Oh, that's me there for sure. Before jail on my 16th birthday in jail. Before I got to my hair pomade and my firebird. Plain Chester Turley. No jailbird. I'd steal milk from cows and cows from farms. And this one time, I stole a farm from a cow. <laughs> Dumbest thing I ever saw. That summer, I stole the sleeves from my own Texas tux. Got a five-finger discount at the local Quickie Mart. Got a belt full of memories and archaeology. Oh, don't I look young in that picture in Peru? Okay, I lied. I didn't do bird till later. My teens, I was living in Peru, was jimmying the doors on tombs and liberating artifacts, classy-like, because that stuff belongs in Museum del Snake. Heady days, buddy. Some things never change. Out for a while, got a bud and a racket. If it ain't chained down, chain it down, and I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so I think this is my last one. Uh, this is uh, based on the game Fallen London, which is a, a storytelling game online, a free one. It's really beautiful, set in an alternate sort of steampunky London uh, with lots of fantasy going on. Uh, when you click through onto an option and you decide not to take it, your refrain is, perhaps not. And that's where this started. This is called Delicious Friend, which is how the game addresses you all quite a lot. Delicious Friend. The embassy is quiet tonight. No lesser imps by sulfur light. You could go home and pour a tot. Perhaps not. No, you have business, old acquaintance, a scent of debt and smoking incense. I thought I'd have to have you caught. Perhaps not. She welcomes you with blazing eyes. I do hope you can help, she sighs. Perhaps you've never been this hot. Perhaps not. She tells you that she's burning up and can't be quenched by any cup. Your legs are weak, the candles squat. Perhaps not. You hand her now the blotto youth. He'll do quite well, she purrs. In truth, you nearly ask, do well for what? Perhaps not. Your hand is empty. Stay a while. I'd like to see that thieving smile. You know, we both, we both might learn a jot. Perhaps not. Well, I've jawed on for eons, kitten. Tell me of your expedition. Rapt, she wants to hear the lot. Perhaps not. You tell her of the rubber men who flubbled through the laudanum dens and nearly mention what they sought. Perhaps not. The carnival, the iron knives. You tell her you live many lives with many souls. Mm. Now there's a thought. <laughs> Perhaps not. Thank you. You are listening to part two of the Poemathon, an all-day, non-stop sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets in May 2019. As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly slash poemdonate. 
Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's programme of events, publications, education and outreach work and keep the doors open to our central London venue, the Poetry Cafe. That's bit.ly slash poem donate. Thanks. Uh, right then, I'm going to do a set now. Have the poems so far been sort of like serious and dour or light and funny? What's the, what's the mood? Both. All right. At the same time. This is in the middle. <laughs> Mario loves tennis and Miyamoto is happy. Miyamoto's hobbies include long-distance gardening. He's really interesting. When the office door is closed, you'd better keep it down. Miyamoto has a bag of human hair in the pocket of his breezy chinos. He has only ever raised his voice once when, in 1998, the CEO asked to make Mario older and more prone to anxiety attacks. He is working on a game where Mario can fly forever. Uh, that hasn't got a title. It's still in progress. Uh, thanks. Um, I like a good list poem. I like the kind of low-stakes nature of a list poem. Uh, I'm going to read a list poem. It's called These Jobs Make Me Anxious. Horse therapist, egg stylist, panel show talent booker, chief whip, Juice advocate, brackets, corporate, B2B. Corduroy wholesaler, world record holder, brackets, any. Guru, brackets, health, biz dev, spiritual. Wet magician, poet. Video game naysayer. It's a list poem, Julia. <laughs> Internet burglar, king of everything the light touches. Football hooligan, award-winning poet. Sunken treasure clue holder. Interested party, interesting party, unlicensed blacksmith, pepperoni sommelier, service user, prosumer, dog, man, quark, universe. Uh, yeah, all those jobs that make me anxious. Um, so the next poem is very much based in a true thing that happened. About two years ago, I found out that Mark Knopfler off of the Dire Straits had hired a PI to keep tabs on me. I won't explain why on mic, but it was true and weird and stressful. Um, this poem is called Open Letter to Mark Knopfler. Leave me alone, Mark Knopfler. I see your hands cauterized into pitiless stumps, and for that I am sorry. Without my instrument's gravity, I too would unlatch. Though countless others decorate your walls, medals pinned to your chest, I know you long for that sunburst birch again. Mark Knopfler. Is it Knopfler or Knopfler? Do you pronounce the P? I don't know. I've never really read this out loud. Mark Knopfler. Gangs call themselves families for the same reason families do, but funerals mean armistice for both. Remember this, Mark Knopfler. Remember that Jesus was a cockney and could turn crime into anecdote. Brackets, white van substantiation. I mean, for how long now have you shot your tracking darts into my arched back? Their red LEDs at their fletches blinking out in secret dialect. I feel your fingers anxious wrap against that nice oak antique waiting table. Drop this now, like my mother, who in fits of rage drops her glottal stops, walks backwards into the family tongue from which I am now absent, as I wish to be absent from this. Mark Knopfler, you are the pain in my gums for which I won't see a dentist. 
You are the WhatsApp message with two grey ticks. You are the TV licensing warning letter. You are the empty struggle of cheap, spicy food. If only you were benign to me, like Mark Rylance, Mark Gatiss, or Mark Commode. <laughs> Instead, you are Mark Knopfler. The midnight sound of scraping behind my room's shared wall. The bottomless, over-the-shoulder, did-I-lock-the-car, long, fluorescent hum. How am I doing for time? Four minutes. Uh, this is a poem that actually got anthologized. It was a prize winner or something last year. I'm very happy with it. Uh, I was going to read it from a book because I don't have anything else to read from a book, but I've just got my phone. It's called Mindfulness Begins. Uh, mindfulness begins with the slow end of quiet defeat. Actually, I'm going to talk about this poem a little bit um, because it's about what happens when an arts project fails and collapses. That happens to like 90% of arts projects. Most never get the like, chat in the pub stage. Some get a bit further, and a few, like this is about, kind of get to the very last hurdle and then collapse, and it's kind of sad and horrible. Um, and as we're fundraising for an organization that has miraculously stayed open for over 100 years, which, you know, for anything is bonkers, but for an arts organization is pure madness, I thought I'd better read this. It's called Mindfulness Begins. Mindfulness begins with the slow end of quiet defeat. We claim what we need and spool what remains. Thick cables wound heavy over a fresh start, obliging ourselves to take the mass this place still carries. Custodians of entropy, good name for an album that will no longer be made here. When the hollow space we leave refills, will our echo still be felt as stickers on the rich boy's MacBooks? Dust clouds beaten out by unfurling yoga mats. Not long left to haggle now, and in the damp silence between soundproof walls, our voices launch their words in turn. Space walkers, boosters course correcting, helmets in each rotation reflecting the light from the sun. Listen, this mixing desk once brokered, video killed the radio star, but now it knows what we know that sound is just vibration and music is an afterthought. Atoms shaking off their excess, the heat death of the universe, waves, then particles, then a slow rolling stop. John Blood bites the clutch of, you are so close, grinds an unlit cigarette into starch and flax and fiber. Am I doing for time? Oh, Christ, I've got loads of time. Um, all right, there's a choice for you. It's like Bandersnatch. Press on your, on your remote control now what you want. Um, so, okay, here's your choice. I've got a poem where I tried writing a love poem because I've never done that before, but it ended up being about me in a way that, you know, when everyone tries that, it just ends up being about yourself. Um, or I've got a poem about dogs who live in America. What do you want? Vote now. The... All right. I mean, it's not really a love poem. Um, practical steps. For you, I would give up smoking. I would be more kind in my correspondence. I would eat three full meals a day, and I would cook them with the oven or hob, which is significant, actually. For you, I would only take drugs at the weekend. No glass, no hot embers. I would delete every app from my phone. Goodbye Facebook, goodbye Instagram. Every drop of endorphin held in trust for you. No feed, no touch, no treadmill. The only Skinner box would be us. 
And then on weekdays, sorry about this, Mike and Julia, and then on weekdays I would get in on time, even though we do not work together. <laughs> this is with the exception of bus delays, lost keys, no hot water, panic attacks, late nights, missed alarms, inelegant breakfast, serious phone calls, or ennui, open brackets, insurmountable closed brackets. For you, I would buy a third pair of jeans and a second pair of shoes. I would open the curtains before noon. For you, I would not walk into traffic or join a gang or choke on my own sick. I would not let the, the nerves win, no matter how fluorescent, not even when your silence stretches my stomach across my skin. Those two blue ticks for you. I would focus my energies into making a YouTube series or a podcast. And you will know my fondness for you by my gently dilating subscriber count. I would begin to write more poetry, though the quality would hold steady on its whimpering plateau. Uh, have I got time for one more? Uh, two, minutes. two minutes. Christ. Uh, all right, let's do the one about... Yeah, that's the poem. Um, all right, let's do the one about dogs in America, because it's lighter. Um, so, very quickly, I wrote this because uh, working in and around poetry, the f main thing I've noticed over the past few years is that the big difference between British and American poets is that British poets love cats and American poets love dogs. That's the main cultural difference in poetry. Um, obviously, it, you know, it features in this. Dogs in America. American dogs have perfect collars and wear neckerchiefs. American dogs know they're wearing neckerchiefs. Polka dot, tartan, stars and bars... American dogs with names like Hunter or Buddy or Ace. American dog food is banned over here because of all the additives, but it's delicious if you can find it. <laughs> American cars are called trucks, and if you see an American dog in one, make sure to take a photo. If the perspective makes it look like the dog is driving, be sure to take a video. <laughs> American poets love their dogs much more than British poets love their cats. American dogs will bark when they see another dog on the TV. If you film your dog doing this in America, YouTube will send you a dollar because you, my friend, have just created content. <laughs> I like this. It's like we've left a Christmas tree up for far too long. Um, where am I? Sometimes dogs in America sleep in a yard, which is like a garden, but bigger. American dogs are given jobs based on their size. American jo dogs, brackets, large jobs, are to rest their heads on the floor, looking worried, eyes darting, ready for when your heart gives out. They will dial 911 after enough attempts, adorably, with their front paw. American dogs, brackets, small jobs, are to pose for photographs, each of which may grant you one dollar. In America, it is essential that your body in its crisp fatigues and your shoulder-slung duffel bag remain fully within frame of the camera when your dog leaps up to greet you, tail wagging, maniacal, paws leaving adorable prints, when you return from your tour of duty of the Middle East, addendum, there are no American dogs, brackets, medium. Right, I think I'm time, probably. Um, so, our next poet. It's you, isn't it, Helen? Yeah. Helen Bowell runs Young Poets Network here at the Poetry Society. She was once four young poets. She's recipient of the London Young Writers Award. I'm going off book here. Um, she and I are constantly locked in a pretty fierce game of Scrabble. It's ongoing. Uh, we had to take photos that we can set up later. I am winning just about, but we won't mention that. There's still time. Please give a very warm welcome for Helen. Hello. Yeah. Oh my god. I don't. Oh my god. Is this new? What the hell is this? Oh, well, we should probably use it more. 
Hello, everyone. Um, do you want a poem about bears or crabs? All right, hands up for bears. Bears then crabs. <laughs> hands up for crabs. Okay, bears then, bears then crabs it is. This one is a participatory poem, and I only invented the idea for it yesterday because I thought you probably wanted to join in with something. So when I raise my hand, and I've not done this before, when I raise my hand, you have to say bear, as in a bear. Okay, so shall we try it now? Bear. Oh, really good. Well done, everyone. Okay. That's the name of the poem. <laughs> it turns out isn't really the word for so petrified of pronouncing the true name in case it conjured one, our ancestors whispered. No, they didn't. <laughs> so petrified of pronouncing the true one, the true name in case it conjured one, our ancestors whispered brown. The brown is sleeping. The brown is in the woods. John faced the brown last week. What could brown conjure after all but twigs and shit? It turns out the most powerful thing is language. Doctors say if you speak kindly to yourself, you'll conjure wellness. I'm a good person. I'm worthy of love. Say it. Look in the mirror and say it. Write it until it's in your wrists. Bellow it holding a staff, circling a fire. Say... Say, Bear. I'm not afraid. Say, I summon you. Bear. I am worthy of love. They promise the bear always comes. <laughs> ah, that was good enough, wasn't it? <laughs> okay, so crabs. Um, this, is, this is a true story. I don't know if Ollie's was a true story. <laughs> Doubtful. This is a true story. I, um, I heard on a podcast that um, Sartre, comma, Jean-Paul, um, believed for years that he was being followed by crabs, by like four or five imaginary crabs, and that they would talk to him, and he would talk to them, and he would say goodnight to them, and they were just constantly there. So this, this is the poem about that. When Sartre talked to crabs, they scuttle around the bathroom when I'm taking a shit. I hear their stuttering spider legs on the kitchen counter when I'm chopping onions, melting butter, pouring wine. When we make love, they mutter humdrum observations in the corner. Poor weather we've been having. Won't it be nice to get away? Every time I wake to fumble for a glass of water, their beady blink startles in the dark. They even chattered while I was teaching till I told them to hush. Now they squat small in the front row impatient for my lecture to end. Then their claws clack again, their breastplates following me sideways out the room, always sideways. In the mornings, I say, good morning, my little ones. How did you sleep? In the evenings, I say, good night, my little ones. Dream sweet. What I struggle with most is what they mean. I haven't eaten their brothers in arms since it started, convinced that eating of their flesh will fuse them to me. The only time they clatter outside the room and into the dark is when I write. So I put them into words, and for a moment, they scuttle away. Um, so this poem is about um, getting a haircut, which I was talking to Jackie about earlier, weirdly enough. So his <laughs> this, is, this also is a true story. They're all true stories, guys. Yeah, they are all true stories. Even the bear thing was true. Okay, a woman who cuts her hair. 
We take a late lunch to get our hair cut, to pay too much to look more like men. We are seen by the same hairdresser every time that we've never spoken her name. She asks us to sit. We shiver under her touch, lean into the lukewarm water we say is fine. Before the mirror, we set down our earrings, our necklaces, and sit down still. The hairdresser drapes us in her shapeless poncho. We have not shaved under our arms or our legs in days, maybe weeks. We pray she doesn't see. The clippers buzz furiously, a wasp we can only escape by staying very still. The blades nudge and tug our neck, graze that rarely touched skin above the ears. We watch our outline shrink into the shape of double takes in public toilets, comments by distant relatives, cold necks and ears. We watch the hair fall like feathers. We are never so vulnerable as now, forced to meet our own gaze or see nothing at all. After we run a hand up the back of our skull against the grain, we can make all the hairs our palm touches stand on end perpendicular to the scalp. The hairdresser says, take care of yourself as we slip out of the poncho, slide our earrings back through our lobes and shake off the hair that's no longer ours, that soon she will sweep away. Thanks. Okay, I think, I think I've probably got time for one more. Well, okay. Okay, this is a poem about uh, being in Hong Kong with my mum, who is from Hong Kong, and her trying to find a place where she used to live that she tells me about all the time, and I never realised where it was until we went there for the first time last year. This year? This year. But she couldn't really remember where it was. was. So it's called Sam So Bowl, which is the name of the place. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Sam So Bowl. On the third day, we take the MTR to Sam So Bowl. Here, you tell me your family hung their washing for a while. But now, when you step out into that high rise neighborhood, you are lost. You rose high here too. Aged 14, you stopped your homework at the kitchen table because your mother needed your fingers to scoop ice cream for strangers to earn a new roof before the typhoon. You grew up in this stairwell where a man put his finger to your back and barked for money. Knowing the gun was his body, you struggled and screamed for help. Nobody cracked a door. I understand these things because you tell them in English, and I don't because I'm not from here. We've come because of a brochure we picked up at the airport, followed its hand-drawn artist's map and the top 10 places to eat. You wanted to see whatever the tourist board saw. You wanted to see home. It takes 20 minutes to find your building. Someone has left the front door open. We begin the long march up six flights of stairs. The floor is sticky as rice, and there's a dust bunny crouching in the corner of every landing. Every door has a floor-to-ceiling metal gate I brush with my fingers as we pass. At last, we reach the roof, walk among other people's laundry. It is hot. I offer to take your photo, because it seems like the thing to do. 
You smile, and for a second, the creases lift out of your forehead. You smile, and then we go. Thank you. So, uh, today, for the Poemathon, we're doing a special offer of membership. 10% off, not 10%, £10 off. Um, becoming a member gives you access to all kinds of cool stuff, um, like the Poetry Review, Poetry News, and puts you in the running for a lot of our competitions and prizes, such as the Hamish Cannon Prize, which our next reader, I got that right, right? You did win the Hamish Cannon. Ramon Herdman won in 2017 for We Are Legion. We Are Many, I Am Many. I'm getting the title wrong. It was a really good poem. Uh, our next reader, Ramona Herdman, her pamphlet Bottle was a PBS choice, and her new pamphlet is due in July. Please give a very warm welcome to Ramona Herdman. I should know that, shouldn't I? I think it's, uh, my name is Legion for We Are Many. I'm pretty sure. Yes. Boy at the off-license. You are slightly too old for this job. And you are not beautiful. But you hold my eye. So I say yes to the taster of pink fizz, refused by the sensible women, working, driving, kids, ahead of me in the queue. It is 11 a.m. on Sunday. And you look like you know the way out of the weight of the world. So yes, I will run away with you, at least as far as the bins round the back, with the rest of the bottle. Uh, this next one, I was interested in what you were saying about your love poem being about you. I think all my poems are about me, really. It's definitely the love poems. Uh, this one was, I went to a wedding, I'm not married, and I was trying to think why people might get married. Uh, so this is my interpretation of that. I do. Despite having broken the same promise over and over, despite knowing my failure of the last 10 years to not want other men and to not do something about it, despite this being a good start, but not everything, not enough for my one life, despite knowing I will continue to need to believe I could step aside from this and run off to the Norwegian wilderness. Forgive me my weaknesses. I'll forgive you your alternative weaknesses, your snideness from the sofa at home during my disappearances, your condescension. Despite this and more like this, I'll put my hand in yours in front of a church full of witnesses. Promise you anything anything, my tender and erring and uncertain darling, that you want, forever and ever, champagne. <laughs> uh, this one's called A Bouquet of Clichés. It's wings and roundabouts, upsets and teacups, a gossip's breakfast, the dream of your mother, it's whatever you want it to be, because I say so. You pays your money and you takes your chances, penny plain and tuppence fancy, truth and beauty. 
Ring a ring a supposes, ring a ring a causes. Guilt and climate change, death and taxes, the crock at the end of the rainbow, a fool soon parted. It's all that there is, so decide to like it. And those that transgress against us, knowing the side your bread is buttered, it gets faster and faster. It's peas and princesses, once upon and ever after, rain and flowers. Uh, this one is about, oh, thank you. Uh, this one is about um, food and uh, the kind of hospitality and being offered food and refusing food and the powers, uh, power struggles in that. Just a small slice. My mother-in-law's spit boils behind her teeth as I refuse another dainty. She's insatiate to feed me and I could get addicted to this as easy as anything else. The men eat, oblivious. The list of edibles scorned builds to nursery rhyme delights of absurdity. If I were a good girl, I'd be ashamed of my minuscule cruelty. But we both know thin wins. There's a grain of poison in her generosity. And I could eat five cakes, three desserts, a Jeroboam of champagne sorbets, and she'd still sad-eye me were I to pass on the Stilton. <laughs> so I demurely mess with her. One of the things she doesn't know about me is the skill I honed at this as a teenage anorexic, torturing my mother. I lick knives, I twist them, and I recognize my sisters. Uh, this is a, a kind of midlife crisis poem um, in which, the, I don't know, some of you are probably old enough to do this, at a dinner party um, playing that game of, like, if you were on a desert island, what would be your one thing? And we were doing one food. Trifle. Oh, and it kind of refers to the start of in a very pretentious way, the start of Dante's Inferno, you know, being lost in a wood at the, in the middle of your life. Trifle. Oh, take it as a sign that you've got too comfortable. If you find yourself in the middle of your life, leaning back over your dinner party after dinner cognac, no one you know anymore a smoker, and conversation idly cycles through your desert island choices and everybody you know is being unbearably, hypothetically sensible. Fuck this for a game of zombies. Take it as a sign that now's the time to smash the bottle and set fire to what, after all, is simply ethanol, fuel you've cultivated a taste for in order to pass as cultivated in society. Burn the house down and go out raging, Find yourself astray in a wood of branching paths, declaring with a passion incomprehensible to these people your allegiance in shipwrecked extremists to sherry-soaked sponge, 
glutinous fruits, cream, to inadvisable, heart-stopping, lifeboatful quantities of brain-freezing fucking custard. <laughs> Put that one on my grave, I think. Um, my marriage to the snow. It doesn't have to speak. I know my bare and wincing foot is what it wants. Frost crust is like a cat's soft warning bite that tests my skin, tests how we live in daily love. Overnight, the snows spread at my feet, its hair, its belly skin of unsunned white. Its undemanding face demands a word. It lies down in perfection, like a dare. Snow's surface glitters, little flexing claws. A slushy hoard of life's marks hides beneath. I can't resist. I want to be the one whose words, whose tread make change. I swear I hear a hush of laughter and a breath. The snow does what it does, but kindly, and I stay. Okay, the last poet I'm going to introduce before handing over to the next host is Astra Papakrisodolu. She uh, freelances for the Poetry Society, is co-founder of the Artist Association Group Pro Art, which has curated several exhibitions across the UK, and she won the PBO Mixed Media Art Prize in 2016. And in the last week, she found out she's going to do a PhD, got funding for a PhD in neo-futurist poetics. So massive congratulations, even though when the robots take over, it will be kind of Astra's fault. Um, please give a very warm welcome for Astra Papa Christodoulou. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so I'm going to be reading a few short poems from my uh, little chapbooks. Um, Almost a Dream was released on Wednesday, so it's very fresh out of the oven. Hope that you like it. And I'm going to start with Almost a Nightmare. Bluish glow. September 1666. Echoes of the great fire lasting three nights. In the chaos and unrest, Medusa's flickering tongues, an intangible yet vigorous earworm, like the whispering of constant traffic. Behind window glass, exuberant explosions of molecular power up and down the scale. Apostrophe. Gravity moonsteps by the River Thames disturb the soil. Variations in iron and titanium content, thunderous agapic emotion and congestion. Almost missing a few notes, but not quite. Conquering my fear of flames, she. Chaos and Cosmos. 360 degrees aerial panoramas over blazing inferno, wood, fabrics, thatch, quasi una fantasia, Neapolitan chords and sforzando, 
water, axes, gunpowder, mood of manic rage rather than of melancholy, each golden lock into venomous snake. Solfage. Burning bodies, keys, a form of solmization, her skin, greenish tinge, clusters of E, G, B flat, C sharp resolve into D flat major, and E flat, F sharp, A, C into C sharp minor, cathartic climaxes, the most unbridled in her petrification of emotion. Another hint. The soil, lunar rocks, this astro body. Opposite the side stood strategically located fortissimo passages connected by a maze of alleys. Under the street lights of urban dystopias, romantic edifice beheaded in each key. Formations. Chrominance, luminance, the magma drops cold in flight. When memory fails, then succeeds to remember the composer of this Gorgonian reverberation. Opposite its side stood mosaic of mineral, volcanic yet jubilant, double daughters, she was. Liquid fire Perseus. By Thursday, the fire was effectively extinguished. The moonlight piano sonata, Beethoven, brick and mortar, soul glowing with scorching redness, opus 27, number two. In C sharp minor, space hysteria, Thir third movement, presto agitato. Relative pitch, it requires a certain timbre, fiery, that explodes to the orgasmic sound of farm squared. And that's almost a nightmare. And now moving on to, hi, almost a dream. It opens with a quote from Yanis Ritos that says, I dissolved so white, so unapproachable, amid my white flame in the whiteness of moonlight. moonlight. And I forgot to say at the start that these are inspired by, uh, of course, the Moonlight Sonata from Beethoven, you probably gathered. Uh, Almost a Nightmare was inspired by the third movement, uh, which is a very dynamic um, part. And um, Almost a Dream is the first one, which uh, you're most of you are pro have probably heard before. It's a very um, sort of familiar classical piece. Archipelagos. There's something strange in the soil that doesn't leave. Eros, here, rapid in the temporal form, inside of caves, inside chaos. Moonlight erethism branches behind boundary trees. No rhyme or reason, and more's not enough. Iliolatry. 
The more the valley ripens in harvest, the more the vast harvests the valley. Vast it reaches, every corner and far it reaches. Vast, the harvest is vast. It reaches more and more. The harvest is covered in buried corners. It grows and it covers more and more every time as it ripens. The more the valley, the vaster the harvest. It grows when all things ripen and the valley is glad. Wilderness. Myriad paths, myriad seeds, myriad spores, myriad streams, myriad vellums, myriad women, myriad whispers, myriad sighs, myriad crescents, myriad spires, myriad wounds, myriad senses, myriad eyes. Under cold moon, maple cotton, flax on flax. For Wilde. Tides and wetlands. The sonata is suffused in light and ungrown. Back and forth, a soft meadow begins the stroke, in repetition, on shores, on the foam of shock waves. In erosion. By means of a narrow isthmus, sifting sands, where and when, I crave for shelter, Tiny maps of myself on your fingertips that grow and swirl, as if shifting, as if shifted, sifted. Nocturnal. Nothing exists in isolation but Saturn, her face always on the other side, facing the north. A near delirium. Inside inverted cataracts, she, the silencer of solace, in this esoteric illusion, Medusa haunts Medusa. And the last one is called Moreover. Moreover, the mist. In depth, we fade. In depth, we accelerate. In blue darkness, ocean blue, we, lunar bedeckers, lost on earthly soil, lost in hetero-homoerotic fantasies, in orbit, in diapason, in... Thank you. <laughs>